Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hernan Coleman is a creative director in Northern California. His evolution from, as he puts it, science geek kid to credulous new ager to become an advocate for critical thinking and scientific skepticism is a work in progress. It was great to speak with him. And I look forward to having you hear our interesting and powerful and personal and offbeat and what I think is timely discussion. Here's Kernan now. So I really want to welcome Kernan to the podcast. Um, I actually reached out to him because we are connected to each other through social media and we know a lot of the same people, but I just think that he has a lot of life wisdom and insights. And I really love also the way he uh, turns a phrase. And so I thought it would be really good and insightful and also fun to have a conversation with him on the podcast. So um, welcome, Kernan. Thank you, Rachel. Good to be here. Good. I'm glad. Well, I'm glad. So far, so good then, right? Um, <laughs> so would you mind just taking a moment to introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Kernan Coleman. I am a branding and graphic design professional up in Santa Rosa, California. And I am a, oh, what else am I? Um, my areas of interest are uh, uh, science, critical thinking, uh, cults, mind control, why we believe what we believe, having been around almost 60 years now. Um, I'm pretty fascinated by what I believe and why I believe it. So right in line with this podcast, of course. And so no wonder I wanted to talk to you. And I, that's a great list. Um, so what people are usually interested in to begin with, and I'm always interested in to begin with is what drew you to these subjects as much as you feel comfortable sharing with the audience, but I'm always interested to see why people care about what they care about in this way. Well, I started out, uh, as a very geeky science kid, um, back in the sixties, my father was a hardcore atheist. Uh, a humanist, uh, very much a compassionate, uh, larger-than-life character. And my mom is lovely, beautiful. Mo- she was a model in New York in the 1940s and 50s. And she wasn't necessarily uh, an atheist or a skeptic, but uh, she wasn't particularly religious either. She she would, she would like to... De- she liked to delve into a lot of different uh, sorts of um, sort of spiritual and seeking kinds of books. So I had I had the the influence of two parents who were very intellectual. They loved art and music and science, and they really encouraged me to explore the world as much as I wanted to, and and I did, and uh, in was very much a, a science oriented uh, kind of snarky combative child and uh then i kind of veered off into uh i would call i would say pseudoscience and um new agey kind of uh, quantum 
abuse, <laughs> you know, abusing quantum physics and all that when I was in my in my late teens. Uh-huh. Uh, and I didn't really think about it. It was just sort of seemed like a natural uh, deviation for me because I, you know, I was very um, I've always been a very ambivalent person. And when I say ambivalent, people usually think that means, oh, you don't care. No, it means you care a lot, but you care, you can kind of care about two things at once and they could be opposites. Yeah. Um, so I was a very creative kid. I was a, an actor. I was on stage from the time I was six until I was in my twenties and an artist, but also passionate about science, space, uh, all that kind of stuff. However, also fascinated by ghosts and monsters and cryptids and, you know, as a kid, I wanted all that stuff to be true. And even as an adult, I, I still kind of want that stuff to be true. But um, I was not a good critical thinker. And that's something that I'm pretty passionate about is teaching critical thinking to children from a very early age. Because I believe children are natural born scientists. They come out of the womb. They're not, uh, they're not religious when they come out of the womb. They're curious. We are the most insatiably curious creatures. And so I love watching little kids go all, you know, they just, they go all scientist on stuff. How does this work? What happens if I drop it? What happens if I flush my $40 orthopedic shoe down the toilet? You know, whatever it is. Um, the kids are just constantly doing stuff. Sometimes it puts the, you know, I burned my hand on the stove because I was like, oh, it's red. <laughs> I learned I learned that lesson. Experiment successful. <laughs> Experiment successful. Painful and successful. Right. Uh, there there is something about how you know when kids uh, ask why a lot, um, and I know parents, caregivers of any sort get really tired of hearing the question, but it is the ultimate question. Yeah. And, and so uh, that's so much about what you're saying about being the scientist. Um, why? Why is it like that? Why does it happen that way? And I think it's a fantastic question. It's also interesting you're talking about ghosts because there's someone I know who, who worked on one of these shows, these ghost shows. Yeah. And uh, I remember him saying that there were, there were so many outtakes because um, they would hear something and uh someone would say oh it sounds like someone is from another dimension <laughs> saying haunted and then the sound guy would go no that's just like the lunch guy saying hot dog <laughs> <laughs> i always i i think those shows should be called what was that because that's all it is that's all they do and why would go why do ghosts only come out at night why is that Right. Wouldn't they be around all the time? Yeah. I mean, why do they always have to go to haunted houses at night? Yeah, it's it's kind of annoying. Um, however, don't get me wrong. As a child, I was absolutely obsessed with ghosts and witches and monsters and things like that. And I thought they were so cool. I loved being scared of that stuff mm -hmm. and and um, imagining that you know I would live forever. And there's yeah. a thing when children discover death, mm. um, and that's a big moment. Uh, you know, Sparky the cat dies or grandma dies or something. And then all of a sudden, oh, where did they go? What happened to them? Why are they not moving? Why is Sparky so still? Uh, you know, all of that stuff. 
and and it depends on when that happens. Yeah, it was uh so so getting to like my veering off into new agery and and things like that, um, that was not handled really well with me. Um, my parents were a lot older; they were forty five and thirty five when I was born, and they always treated me like a like a, a a small adult. But they also didn't really understand anxiety i think especially existential anxiety mm -hmm. and that stuff sets in early yeah um and you know i was just a kind of a good easy kid so you know i wasn't running around like freaking out about stuff plus no one died in my family until i was like 13 mm -hmm. so um even the dog didn't die till i was 21 so really? oh you're you know, so lucky uh, I had I had a 17 year old dog die when I was 20, twenty twenty one. Wow. So uh, so that wasn't like a thing. I mean, a, a goldfish died, and I was just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but it was um, yeah, it was gnawing at me, and my uh, the uh, my parents were very sort of they were sort of weird around it. They would they wouldn't talk about it when people died uh, there was a my friend's uh father died when i was about six and i they were like do you want to go to the funeral and i was like no 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 it's weird and it was it freaked me out and they didn't make me go and I, I, to this day i wish they had because my friends were the my two sisters who were really friends of mine and are still friends of mine to this day i think it hurt them that i didn't go and it set up a sort of a otherness about death yeah right and you know the the grim fairy tales when you were a child in the middle ages everyone died all the time you lost siblings one two people died in their village whole villages died of the plague um it was like built into the mythology for children because you're gonna have to face it so right it's very true and you're right there, those existential questions do set in at an early age and they affect people in different ways and i think that just the the notion of not existing oh yeah that our brain cannot kind of wrap itself around especially at a young age especially when you're having this kind of innocence about mm -hmm. life and just sort of taking in your day and what are yep. you going to do later and that's sort of all that's on your mind about like you know what game you're going to be able to play or the new bike or whatever else and so to suddenly think about not being is more than i think more than most adults also can it's do. it's still it still offends me i find it very offensive i, I from a, just from an egoic standpoint it's just offensive no <laughs> i i need to fly around and see the solar system after i die and visit with all my cool friends and meet people I've always wanted to meet and right. yeah it's uh so that that for me was a uh, that for me was a, a a thing that set in this gnawing existential angst uh, for me veering off into uh new agery uh channeling and uh afterlife experiences mm -hmm. was soothing to me mm -hmm. it's like yes everything will be okay um, I'll reincarnate, I'll have an afterlife experience and I'll, you know, choose a new life. And 
all of that stuff that um that kind of like new agey stuff i remember there there's something they they do a lot in um new thought and new age which is uh, you create your own reality and it's actually horrific victim blaming in reality <laughs> what it really is is victim blaming so if you create your own reality and you're well you're not sick you're the worried well which I definitely was at the time because mm -hmm. uh, alt med was a big part of my new age experience. Um, and my partner at the time was very into that. So it was great. Uh, not uh, thousands and thousands of dollars spent on very expensive pee in terms of homeopathy and what? supplements and okay. Reiki and acupuncture and uh, you name it. Anyway, uh, to, to get back to what I was saying, um, for me, it was very soothing to have this sort of afterlife. And then I tried, because I was still skeptical and still a science-based person, I was very much drawn toward uh, Fritjof Capra and uh, the the quantum woo meisters like Deepak Chopra and stuff like that, who, who would take quantum physics and sort of abuse it until it fit their worldview. Because quantum physics is so weird and so incomprehensible to our macro you know humans that a scientist who tries to you know scientists can even have their own cognitive biases and see what they want in in that i think so so i i was very into all that for for a long time and you know just to to say that that that's what a lot of people talk to me about that that was the draw that they wanted to be able to have the answers to the unanswerable. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to be able to feel um, confident and be able to envision um, and be able to answer why. And it's very relieving. And I know that um, even though I'm not necessarily uh, believing in a particular way, I might at a different time if I'm needing that. And I think being able to have it be fluid, if that's what you're needing in your life at that time, I think is an important thing. It's just, it seems to be problematic when you adhere to a particular belief system that tells you that you have to believe that way or else. And so, I mean, that's part of the reason that I do this work. Right, well, especially if there's an or else. Right. Uh, yeah, for me, it, for me, it was, uh, like I said, pretty much anxiety driven and, um, the the seeking I think is very normal in humans, and the anxiety about death is very normal. And it would it would take me like a good fifteen years from I don't know. Let's see when was that that I really started veering off. It was like nineteen eighty that I started veering into that stuff, and it really wouldn't be until nineteen ninety six that I started a 10 year process of all of that falling away. And, um, and it, it was, uh, I, I had started to work for a sort of new age dog and pony show called whole life expo and, uh, doing branding and graphics. And, and, uh, yeah, I was very into it, but it was, it's funny in retrospect, some stuff I would totally buy. And then other stuff I'd be like, Oh, well, that's so stupid. Why would anybody believe that? <laughs> and not want to even examine my own cognitive biases and my own uh right. my, my own blinkers that would be like la 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 
uh, I would read, you know, I'd see Carl Sagan and I would just be like, no, no, don't melt my snowman. Um, and hate it. I, I kind of hated Carl Sagan because he scared me because I, I, I kind of knew inside that he was probably right, mm. but he was trying to melt my snowman and I didn't like that. And, and I still will say, uh, hating Carl Sagan is like hating puppies. So, you know, it's, I, I, I it's in retrospect, it's kind of hilarious. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But it's interesting about the whole Life Expo. I know it's very popular and a lot of people go and a lot of people, um, you know, pedal their stuff there. And there's some things that are probably fine and some things that are not at all, but it's all there uh, for anyone to consume or believe. And so part of the challenge, of course, becomes how to differentiate and what questions to ask and what to find out before you buy. Right. Well, or is there is there a body count involved in it? Are they trying to tell you to not take your meds? Are they trying to tell you that you can just throw away your, you know, insulin or something like that? And the, the, there's a lot of that out there. And um, for me, uh, it uh, when I say there was a ten year period, the ten year period was marked by two deaths: the death of my best friend from AIDS in 1996. And the death of my sister from uh, recurrent lung cancer in uh, 2006. So it was a 10-year period. Um, uh, working for Whole Life Expo was a began to scrape all of the barnacles off my hull of magical thinking because I ended up seeing these people's behavior and seeing that they were just like everyone else, egoic, petty, greedy sometimes funny, sometimes, you know, I'd see them in the green room or I'd see them at cocktail parties or I'd see them and, and just be like, "Mm, no, these people don't have any answers, but it took me a long time to kind of figure that out. Um, I won't, I I will not name names and incidents, but there were plenty of them over the years that I worked with that company. Uh, It's, I'm grateful for it. I'm super grateful for those years um, because I met a lot of great people as well and, and people who I'm still friends with, people who I still work with oh, um, okay. from, from, the, from the creative team I created for them and okay. who I still work with to this day. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, it was, uh, as I said, it was the, the, the death of my friend Paul in uh, 2006 from AIDS. And he and I were both, very spiritual thinkers and he was a channeler i really believed he was psychic i truly believed he was psychic he was intuitive and super smart he a very very smart person knew his history was obsessed with art and and history and uh, really knew his stuff but he could read tarot and uh, do cha- what he said was channeling what he was was hyper vigilant, which I believe was from childhood trauma that he was very upfront about. Uh, but one of the things he was, you know, AIDS was terrifying back then because it really was a death sentence in those days. And the people that made it through made it through for a variety of reasons, usually because they just kept tra- throwing drugs at it and they were strong enough physically um, to survive it. Yeah. And Paul introduced me to someone named Peter Duesberg, who is a molecular biologist at Berkeley, who was uh, worked on the oncogene, which was a gene that he thought caused cancer. Um, he is still a 
tenured professor at Berkeley, but he is an HIV denialist. He doesn't believe HIV causes AIDS. And we met him. We went to hear him talk. I was, that was what I wanted to hear. I totally fell for it. And uh, Paul totally fell for it. And the tragedy is, you know, I was negative. He was positive. And he didn't even know it at the time. He was just, we were just both fearful of it. And then once he became, once he zero, knew he had zero converted, mm. um, um, my partner and I at the time uh, were friends with him. And, you know, we tried to be supportive and helpful. And I was still totally in alignment with his believing that HIV didn't cause AIDS. And I remember the head of uh, the HIV medicine in Sonoma County begging him listening, I was sitting in the waiting room. She was practically in tears, begging him to try protease inhibitors. And he just kept calling her the queen of AZT and that stuff's poison. And uh, I, I was, I didn't doubt it enough. Mm -hmm. And he, he died with a bag of protease inhibitors an arm's length away. And I, even then it still didn't go away. That's how much you can torture reality and rationality and logic if you want something to be true, if something makes you anxious enough, if something is frightening enough. And it's why I have compassion for people who believe in I, 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 you know, things that have a body count. I understand, I understand why people are anti-vaccination. I'm not. I know the vaccines are have made people's lives much longer and it's not a perfect science, but it's pretty darn good science. Um, logic and all of that shows that, you know, the diseases that once ravaged childhoods vanished after all of the um, vaccines came on the scene. Mm -hmm. But I understand what it's like to be so blinkered and so blinded that you will throw your rationality away because of fear. Um, I'm not saying it's okay to do that, but, and I'm not saying I don't argue with people about it because I do. Right. Uh, so Paul's death was the beginning of me starting to go, wow, uh, this, maybe this isn't all true. Maybe, may, maybe these ideas are not uh, real. And it, it took me another 10 years of it, it took me another 10 years of that stuff wearing off of me. Um, the death of my father, he was at 94, very, you know, timely for him. It wasn't like, oh, he died young. Right. And he died in a rest home, so I wasn't there. Mm. But it was the death of my sister, who was 63 at the time. Her cancer that she had had 10, uh, 17 years earlier and had beaten with chemo and radiation uh, came back and it came back with a vengeance. And in that five weeks from her calling me and saying it's back to her dying, I spent every weekend, I would go up every weekend and visit her and spend the day with her at least every, every weekend. And her, her grace, and I'll use that word, her human grace, mm -hmm. her acceptance and the normalcy that she brought to her passing by planning everything, by taking care of all the things that needed to be taken care of, absolutely changed my life. It made my fear of death 
really went away um, in those five weeks, even though she was dying right in front of me because she, the conversations we had, um, you know, we, we talked a lot, we cried a lot, we laughed a lot. And my, the, the one conversation that changed everything was she said to me one day, do you still believe in that create your own reality crap? <laughs> As she said, and I said, no, I really don't anymore. And she mm -hmm. said, good, because the one thing you learn when you're facing your, your own death and you really accept it is that there's only one secret to the universe and that is shit happens. And it was, it was funny and we laughed about it, but that bumper sticker phrase was the moment when everything just went and I was just like, that, that was, I just didn't need that stuff anymore. Um, it was kind of a weird epiphany right? in that moment. Um, so yeah, that was, that was, that was the end of all that for me. And I came out of the, came out of the fog uh, with a vengeance into skepticism, atheism, <laughs> critical thinking and activism, big, big time activism as much as I could. Right. So. So, yeah, I want to ask about that. And first, I just want to remark about, you know, the stories that you just shared. I mean, they're just heartbreaking for different reasons. Um, and but also for shared reasons about the loss. And so, um, yes, during the time of the epidemic, it was extremely frightening. Yeah. Um, and uh, and scary for so many people for a lot of reasons. but. Um, that the government wasn't doing what it should and everyone was dragging their feet. And uh, finally, finally people were able to get some help. And now, um, you know, when you think about the loss of someone within your family and the way she handled it and how it's affected you and how that whole idea of shit happens. I mean, that is just really, calling it as it is and there's something very open very honest about that i think also going back to something that you were saying about the whole life expo and then i want to come back to the activism that you just mentioned oh sure um when you were talking about how some of the people you know they could be really honest about what they were doing or and some were just probably snake oil sales men and women um, and some were funny. I'm sure also because I've come across this, there are some who were so serious because of their self-importance um, or sense of self-importance. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that there was no way to kind of question their pseudoscience. Oh, uh, yeah. And they're usually uh, very defensive, which I think is also a red flag. I have something on my desk that I'm looking at as we're talking. And I don't know who originally wrote it. So if someone knows, please tell me. It's the quote, um, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And that's sort of a mantra um, that I have here in my office, especially because of a lot of the population that I work with. But when you are faced with that, with people who are just having all these answers that can't be questioned, it also sets me into wanting to do something about that because just that kind of air of entitlement. I have it and, and you can't touch it and you can't question it. And you're a lesser being for questioning it. I mean, that's, right. that lights a fire under me. And, and so tell me about your activism, what triggered it and how, 
how does that play out in your life? Well, for me, having woken up and having realized that the HIV denialism killed my friend mm -hmm. and that I was, I was a part of that, even though he introduced me to all of it. Um, you know, I, I, I could sit there and question myself and say, oh, well, why didn't you think, you know, why didn't you change then? Why didn't you question it? Why didn't you make him take the drugs? Blah, blah, blah. Um, no, that, that was not a, that was not on the, that was not in the cards at the time, right. so to speak. No. no, no pun intended. Um, no, we were, we were both very into that, uh, worldview at the time and with some other friends of ours too, who I hope are all out of it. Um, but the idea that a, that a scientist, that a, someone who was nominated for a Nobel Prize, somebody who was a respected scientist, uh, could do something like that, could, could, could influence the president of South Africa into that. You know, they estimate upwards of 300,000 people died that didn't have to die because of HIV denialism because of uh, Thabo Mbeki believing Duisburg and a dozen other so-called doctors and activists who were utterly convinced that HIV wasn't real because it was too scary. They wanted to believe that garlic or something else would cure you or it was all just a big mistake. It's like, whoa, that takes some really, really big blinders. <laughs> to do that. And for me, it was the conspiracy that would have to be in place. It was the, the absolute conspiracy that would have to be in place for that to work. That woke me up a couple of years after Paul died. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, that was one of the things, one of the big scales falling from my eyes it was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. So when I, when I came out of it all, um, after my sister passed away, I, I immediately went to like James Randi and uh, Gizzy Myers and uh, Carl. S I read all the Carl Sagan I could find, all of the great science books that I could find, Richard Dawkins, uh, Christopher Hitchens, very, very um, polemic. I was very polemic. I was very angry. I was very like, gung-ho, you're stupid if you believe that. I was like super atheist, super dark, um, uh, kind of an asshole probably. Uh, and I really, really, really was like, God, oh, I know something about this. I can fix you. Um, which, you know what? I'm, I, I'm glad that I had that drive. I'm glad I had that passion. I, I've, I have volunteered for a lot of uh, science and free thought and skeptical organizations. Um, and I work with, I still work with a lot of them to this day. And I, I love doing it and I love helping, but I like helping through teaching, helping through, uh, through, um, kind of showing that life is, is, is better on the, without magical thinking, mm -hmm. not without wonder, not without beauty, not without love and joy and art and all of that but without magical thinking. When you were talking about uh, also James Randi, who is someone who not a lot of people have heard of him. I wish more people have, are, are aware of his work. He, he has taught people so much uh, when you were just talking about magical thinking and his world was magic. Um, mm -hmm. And he's quite a character. In and of himself. Oh, I, I, wor I worked for him for several years. 
that's wonderful. And I and I heard him speak at a number of conferences, and uh, I know the challenge that he's sort of set up. And can you can you teach our listeners a little bit about James Randi? Well, James Randi was one of the greatest escape artists of the uh, 20th century. He was a young, as a young man in Canada, he was obsessed with Matt, with Houdini and magic and all of that. He had a he had a pretty rough childhood from what I from what I remember. There's a very good movie about his life called um, An Honest Liar. Um, that I did all of the archival photo retouching for and the poster for mm-hmm. um, by uh, Tyler Meesom. It's a really wonderful documentary because um, it's not a hagiography. It's really actually a, a, a wonderful film about a, a really interesting dude. Mm-hmm. And uh, Randy's Randy became very, very uh, much a skeptic and very, very much a, a proponent of uh rationality and the scientific method and even though he was a master magician i the first night i ever met him i was just talking today i was in san francisco and i saw him speak at the the jewish museum in san francisco they have a a a theater there and they rented that theater and he gave a talk on uh critical thinking and magic and stuff and that was the first night i met him and started working with that with uh, the james randy educational foundation and um, we went to the slanted door for dinner and I sat across the table from him and he was in his late 80s then, I guess, and had just had cancer therapy for months. And walk, we walked all the way from the Yerba Buena Gardens down to the, to the restaurant. And he talked the whole time. He was like animated and just amazing. And I sat and he did sleight of hand magic across the table from me. And I could not see how he did it. I was absolutely blown away by that. Wow. And and in that moment, he was talking to me and saying, it's like, okay, you know, I can do this to a, in front of a scientist. I can do this in front of uh, the smartest person in the world, and it'll still work on them. They'll even go, well, I don't know how he's doing it, but I still am seeing these things happen. So the the idea of the honest liar, someone who is so good at sleight of hand, so good at the con, so good at misdirection, being the person that reveals that to the world, I think is a really neat idea. Yeah, right. And and I think also uh, Penn and Teller have followed Mm -hmm. in that tradition. Yeah, very much in his footsteps. They're big fans of his, I know that. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. And, and I think that they they really love the fact that that people can be fooled, but they also really detest the people who are fooling other people in serious ways. For for yeah, the the I, the, the Greek vampires and in our society are are I think it's it's really detestable, even if they are delusional and they really believe that they're talking to dead people. I I feel through, with Paul, I had this world, this view inside of that phenomenon mm. of, of someone who truly believed he was communing with other, he was just making it up in his head and he was really good and he was really theatrical and he was really smart. And he convinced himself that he was talking to someone else, that, that, that the wisdom that he had came from somewhere else. And 
the the, the, arch, the archetypes of the tarot, those are those are those were carefully crafted. Mm -hmm. Those are the those are the human behaviors. That's pretty much they're they're brilliant in that respect. Mm -hmm. The magician, the hanged man, the priestess, the the star, all of those all of those things are things inside of everyone. So when when someone cold reads and they're really good at it, and maybe they're hypervigilant, and they look for they look they read you because they're really good at it. Because at one time in their life, their life depended on it. I I really do believe that now. Having known, having known a Paul, uh, having known Paul as well as I did, right. and having been very much a fan of Jane Roberts, who was a channeler back in the seventies, and uh, really believed her a lot. She was a really remarkable writer, I think, and very creative and very. Uh, she wanted to believe what she, what she was doing was real because she was suffering from a horrific disease, rheumatoid arthritis that was almost crippling and agonizingly painful most of her life. Her mother had died from it. She had watched her mother die from it. I think it scared her deeply. And I have an enormous compassion for her. She was, she was a, a creative, really wonderful person, I think. Mm -hmm. But I think it was kind of delusional in the end. And her story and Paul's story were so similar. Abusive mothers, diseases, uh, uh, psychological effects of, of PTSD from an abusive mother, hypervigilance, all of that. I'm not saying every single person who claims to be a psychic is that, but uh, I would be surprised if, if they didn't have a lot of similars in their backgrounds. That's just my uneducated theory. I'm sticking to it. So going back to this, uh, this subject of magical thinking or the needs that you have around death and dying and the fears uh, around that. Uh, it's actually, it's interesting. You're reminding me of the time right after my father passed away. Unfortunately, he died in his late fifties and I was 22 at the time. And he's the one who, who kind of got me interested in this whole realm of critical thinking and all of it. I remember right after he passed away um I was hanging out with a lot of friends who were sort of you know keeping me afloat I was very young and it was really a shock to the system and I'm the one who found him in the street he had died it was really a hard time being the baby in the family and being the one to have to tell everyone in the family that he was gone um including my mom so that was a very hard time but I remember being someone who was not into magical thinking at all, but having this very strange experience. And if my friend Mindy is listening, she can attest to this because she was often out with me when this would happen. In the months after he passed, I would see people who look like him. And there were a couple of times it would happen so often we'd be out somewhere and she would say, that person looks just like your dad or has a mm -hmm. voice just like your dad. I saw him everywhere. Yeah. And she would say, go over and talk to that person. I said, no, and she would. You know, you remind my friend, <laughs> and she was very comforted by that. And so I, no. I would end up talking to these people, and some of them were a little freaked out, and some of them were very kind and said, oh, I'm so glad that I could be here to help you with this moment and feel connected. And that was really lovely and generous of them, even yeah. if you know, they believed or they thought we were nuts, whatever it was. But what was so interesting was that after a period of time, I no longer saw him everywhere because I didn't need to. 
He did need to, yeah. And and so that's that he was more integrated into me and into my mind, but not into my daily life where I was used to seeing his face. So my as my needs shifted and as my acceptance shifted, my experiences around me also shifted and what I saw was different. And that was fascinating to me because I realized that I saw what I needed to see because I needed it. Yeah. And I was used to it. Uh, my my relationship with uh, death has changed dramatically since those uh, since my younger days, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's odd to me that I would be more comfortable with it the closer I got to it, and more afraid of it when I was young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just strange to me. Um, uh, well, I mean, I think I understand. I mean, you know, it's a shock to the system when you're young and and you think that your whole future is before you and right. you're not thinking about it ending. I think something to go back to your activism, you use a great phrase and I wrote it down, grief vampire. And so there is, yes, we can shift from talking about grief to talking about the vampires. I mean, the, right. the people who were parasitic, the people who feed off of other people's trust and love right. and pain. Um, and sadness and fears. And that, you know, I think that fuels a lot of people to to do this kind of work, this kind of mm-hmm. activist work. And so I'm, yeah. I'm wondering about that for you, if it was the vampire part that got you. It was, it was, um, it was actually the alt-med charlatans that mm-hmm. really fueled me with, with having the HIV denialism is still around. It's not very pr- pronounced anymore. I mean, anti-vax stuff is far more damaging right now. Um, there are a lot of quacks out there who promote just crazy, do- like, don't even get me started on goop. That that just makes me mental. Oh, I just, I can't even handle that. A, a, a rich fool and their money are soon parted. But um all of that kind of stuff. I, I, I'm angry about it, and I want to. I want to like be an activist, and at the same time, I have a lot of compassion for the believer exactly. because they're afraid, exactly. and may, they don't even know they're afraid. They would. I would not have told you. Uh, people and uh, at Skepticon, Skeptical, and and other events, people come up to me and said, "Well, what would have changed your mind back then?" I'm I'm an activist. I want to know what would change have changed your mind. And I can tell you, nothing would have changed my mind. I would not have changed my mind. It would have locked me in more. I would have gotten more like, yeah, really? Mm-hmm. I know that because people would come at me. I mean, I like I said, I sat there and listened to the head of HIV medicine, try to talk my friend into taking these drugs. And it, even that didn't sing in to me. I just thought she was being mean. She was being compassionate and she was heartbroken. And and as after he passed away, as gracious to me as as you could imagine, hmm. because she knew I was in pain. Right. But she also knew I sat in the other room and while well, I didn't try to talk him into taking the drugs because I totally believed Peter Duesberg and I totally believe Christine Maggiore, who who was an HIV denialist who died of AIDS and her daughter died of AIDS. And they still denied that that happened oh well she died of this and her daughter only had meningitis or whatever uh no she had they did autopsies she had hiv it was not a thing 
So while 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 it's still sort of a uh, it's still sort of a fringe denialist thing, um, there there are a lot of things out there that that really fueled my activism around quackery and uh, uh, and and made me really happy to be able to work for the James the JREF the James Randi Educational Foundation and I met a lot of great people like uh, the the novellas the novella brothers who do. Uh, um, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which is a brilliant podcast. I work with them mm. on uh, their brand and their design work. And uh, David Gorski, who is a cancer surgeon who has Respectful Insolence, which is a really great um, blog about quackery and just despicable behavior. But that's the thing about science. It's self-correcting, always self-correcting. Mm. Even, even with uh, John Ioannidis' papers about uh lots of peer-reviewed stuff is is there's chicanery going on with that and it's mm -hmm. but it's but we know it because we eventually figure it out because other scientists have to peer review it and right you know follow the money and follow the power you know those are those are two things that i think scientists don't do one thing james randy did was something called um project alpha hmm. in which he hired these two uh, magician. Uh, he got two of his magician uh, proteges, these young guys, uh, a guy who goes by the name of Banachek now, who is a great magician and a, another young man. And he had them go to uh, some scientists, I think at Stanford, claiming that they were uh, psychic and had telekinesis abilities. And they totally fell for it. They absolutely fell for it. And James Randi kept going, are you sure you don't want me in there to show you all the, you know, to the scientists, I should, I should be in there with doing the protocol for you. And they're like, no, 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 they're, 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 they totally fooled this, these, these scientists. And they just use simple tricks, simple magic tricks, because the scientists couldn't believe someone would do that. They couldn't believe they'd be unethical. Right. That's the astonishing thing mm -hmm. is that scientists are trained in reason and logic and they don't understand it when somebody does crazy Ill illogical stuff right? because they're not looking for it. They're not expecting it. And that's the thing about magic, where if you learn magic and misdirection and uh, sleight of hand, then you there is lessons to be learned there. It, for for everyone, whether you're whether you're applying for a loan or buying a car or you know shopping for a vacuum or something online, mm -hmm. critical thinking serves you all the time. I'll get off get off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, no, your soapbox is a good one, and I I'll, I'll climb up there with you uh, once in a while because I think we have a lot to to talk about and commiserate about, and I think that when you were talking about what fueled your activism, I mean, you know, there could be a lot of things that fuel it, but one of the things is sort of what you were talking about when you were talking about the scientists, that, that they couldn't believe that people would be doing this, would be trying to trick other people um, because they're so fact-based um, and it has to be honest and true. Uh, and so I see kind of the wreckage of, people who were trusting and good and kind and and honest 
and believe that because that's the way they operate in the world, that that's the way other people were going to be with them. Um, that, you know, what happens to them when someone just completely takes advantage of that? And yes, it is a bit of a different story when the person who takes advantage of that really does believe. I, I, I try to give them more of a pass, you know, when they're just yeah. kind of out there and they really have have um, convinced themselves of it. Yeah. But when someone knowingly does this to someone else, that is what gets me. That's like, I, you would know the exact term for that. I don't know if it's sociopathy or psychopathy, but it's it, it's out there. Um, I had a long relationship with somebody who suffered from borderline personality disorder in my youth. And th that's that's an amazing personality disorders are not well understood by the lay public i don't think and yet everyone knows someone with a personality disorder yeah i guarantee you right and some of them are in positions of enormous power right now <laughs> around the world um you know i'm sure there are there are you know, there's, I don't know how many kinds of human being there are. I, I bet there's only like 10 kinds of human beings if you want to, I don't know. I don't know what it would be. I'm sure in psychology and it's people's, are, people are broken down into all kinds of behaviors and clusters of behaviors. And I know that personality disorders are uh, disagreed on in the DSM even. It's like, yeah. They change the parameters of it, and they they argue at conferences, and they come up with improved versions of those things. Mm -hmm. But you know, people people do not always have your best interest at heart, um, and sometimes people are very broken and will do anything to 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 make a living. And if if they believe they can sell ionized water, which is just tap water. And it's not hurting anybody. It's not hurting anybody. Right. I'm just charging ten dollars a bottle for or the the cra <laughs> the craze for raw water. That was that's wonderful. Uh -huh. Raw water. Yeah. I mean, I ah. Uh huh. Think about you. Try to use my powers for good. <laughs> <laughs> just pictured you with this cape waving in the wind. Uh, so yeah. So I support you using your powers for good and yeah, I try um, I support all all people who who do that who want to be out there on the front lines um, and not for themselves you know because there's a lot that that you do that I'm finding out about that is behind the scenes which is actually a really lovely thing um, so there's a lot more that you've done than people know about or might ever know about uh, you know I, I, <laughs> I have a I have a, a fairly healthy ego and um i like being acknowledged for stuff but you know sometimes i know it does not need to be about me it really shouldn't be about me it should be about the thing i'm trying to help people with um right. there are so many people that are taken advantage of in the world mm -hmm. and the the one thing about being a critical thinker and and trying to be a trying to be a critical thinker because my critical thinking is is something that I will be learning to do for the rest of my life and my magical thinking will never go away every time I see a light in the sky I want it to be an alien mm -hmm. every time I because that would be awesome 
it, it's always the first thing that comes to my mind is the <laughs> magical uh, cause of something. It doesn't matter what it is. A black cat will run across and I have to let go. It's a black cat. Okay. 13 isn't going to hurt me. I can walk under the ladder. Right. Um, one thing that always, always cracks me up is I, I always use Siri and like Siri call my mother and I call, call Joan Coleman and Siri goes calling Joan Coleman home. And I was first time I heard that, it's like, oh, that's bad luck because he's, they're calling her home. I was like, Oh, really? It's a, it's a, it's a machine that you're talking to and it doesn't even have a really a brain come on it, it's it's superstition like that that uh it, it doesn't go away just because you're a critical thinker you, you even you might have i have to pause for a second and and go oh right. yeah i remember i used to be freaked out about things like that but i but i think that there's something so honest about that that we we want we want certain things to be true Oh, I do. I still want things to be true. I still want. I still want mind-body dualism to end up being a thing, and I fly around the universe after I die and check out the cloud surface, cloud tops of Saturn, and see life on other planets and hang mm-hmm. out with my friends forever. I mean, mm-hmm. that would be cool, but right. I don't think the evidence leans that way. Right. And I have accepted that not knowing I don't exist. Mm. It's just, it's going to be just like 19, uh, it's going to be just like 1958 for me or 57. Right. And it'll be just like 1957 for me. That's all I can say. Cause I was born in 1959. Right. So. I figured <laughs> that was I, I've been, I've, I've been dead for much longer than I've been alive. If you think of, if you want to think about it that way. Ooh, that's a really interesting way to see it. I've been dead for 14 and a half billion years. And I get this little, my belief is, my passion is that I get this little window to look out into the most amazing universe you could possibly imagine. Mm. And, and, and that we have consciousness is astonishing. That, uh, that consciousness evolved on this planet is so cool. Mm. Does it evolve everywhere? I don't know. I used to automatically think I grew up with Star Trek and Lost in Space and Battlestar Galactica and Star Wars. So I just kind of always had that. uh, Of course, it's everywhere. But, you know, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's really rare. And to waste it um, fearing Armageddon or to waste it toiling away in the basement of the, the Cedars of Lebanon building under Scientology or to waste it in a fearing uh, hell is is heartbreaking to me but to be in awe of the moon and to be in awe of the tides and to be brought to tears by bats flying out of the congress street bridge or to to love astronomy or to love all the people around you that is is the the incredible gift we have and and my sense of wonder multiplied so much once I let go of magical thinking that it became more precious to me. Beautiful. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know what to say. It's just, mm, it's kind of delicious. All right. So good to, to talk to you, to learn from you, to appreciate that you, that you are an unsung or only partially sung hero. Oh, it's my it's my it's it's like once again it's my view through this little set of 
monkey eyes here that I get to look out into the world through. And and I know there are seven and a half billion other people with equally valuable, equally amazing worldviews. And mm, I, I can't be in judgment of whether they're doing it right or wrong. Right. I mean, I might I might say so, but I, I, I can't make them bad or, bad or wrong for it, you know? Right, okay. Okay, so good to speak with you. Thank you for your time and your insights. And I hope we to talk again soon. Yeah, so that would that would be good. I, there are other subjects I would probably want to cover someday. So yeah, let's definitely do that. I'll, okay, I'll, I'll pencil you in till whenever. <laughs> Great, be awesome. Okay, good. Talk Thanks, Rachel. You're welcome. Bye. Bye bye. As promised, I want to give you an update on Alan and Dee. I did an episode a little over a year ago called Home Invasion about a couple who had a man named Randy move into their house and take over their lives in every way. And a lot of people remembered the story for a lot of reasons, but especially because of the notes that Alan and Dee started sending back and forth to each other as a way to communicate when they weren't allowed to talk to each other in their own home. Randy made sure of that. They've saved their notes. They're still buried in a box in the yard of the house that they sold and they have digital copies, so they will have it as a memory, always. And Randy's still in jail, and what's incredible is that he has a following in jail. He is so calculating and so masterful, unfortunately, at being charismatic and making people think that he has wisdom beyond anyone else. And he's also intimidating, so people feel the need to have to listen to him, even in jail. And Alan has continued to do voiceover work, and that's why he's not doing this update, because he now has a recognizable voice and wants to keep some privacy. And Dee has one more year of school to become a teacher. So they sold their house, and they were going to buy a new one, but they decided they weren't ready. They felt like they needed a little more therapy under their belts to be able to really feel secure and safe and protect their home. And so they're renting for now until they feel stronger. And... Because they have some post-traumatic stress, understandably, from their experience, they're both going to therapy, and Alan attends a men's group where he learns a lot about how to stand up for himself and how to get over his fears of confrontation. I saw them at a local conference here in L.A. that I was running, and I hope to see them again. And also, last time I gave you an update, they were expecting a baby. They had a baby. She's wonderful and five months old and they're gonna do everything they can to teach her how to keep herself safe in this world. One more thing before you go. I was struck by my conversation with Kernan. Of course, he is one of these unsung heroes and does a lot of things, a lot of really good and powerful things from behind the scenes. And we've known of each other for a long time, but haven't had an opportunity to talk. And so I was really happy about being able to do so today and then share my conversation with you. He used a term that I really liked called new agery. And it was so good because there's so many terms that just have become part of our lexicon that at time meant nothing and then meant something. And then when you play with it, you realize it also kind of means nothing because what does it mean to be new age? Everything or the next thing is new age. And so it's fine for me to call it new agery. And then I started thinking about some of the ideas that I come across in my work. And I was going over some of my notes from calls I had received and emails and clients I had heard from. 
And they might actually refer to something, but that something might not be anything real. It's very trippy. It's very interesting. And it's interesting work. If anyone wants to do it, please let me know. But going over my notes, here's just a brief list I came up with with some of the terms that I had heard recently. Scanning, new thought, A Course in Miracles. That's been around for a while. The idea of mindfulness. It's a good idea, I suppose, although it's been so used and overused that now it kind of doesn't mean very much of anything, but a lot of people are making money off of it. The idea of a human crystallization, DNA reformation, hallucinogenic activation, spiritual healing, masters of the ancient, transformational vibrations, anything Atlantis, Atlanteans, or also Aquarian, anything Aquarian. Planetary energy alignment, harmonic convergence, ascended masters, mediums, quantum anything, actually, that isn't science, like quantum mysticism. Neo-shamanism, automatic writing, enlightenment, whatever that kind of means. State of being, suspended beingness, soul purpose mapping, Raising Your Frequency, Betelheim Autism Cures, The Lizard People, Astral Everything also, Astral Communication, Astral Projection, Astral Connectivity, etc. And Dianetics, Body Thetans, The Purification Rundown, uh, unfortunately, Sexual Corrections can only, well, I won't get into that, that's very disturbing. Sexual purification, also disturbing. Sexual manifestation, just not ever quite sure what that means, but it's usually inappropriate and wrong. Primal scream therapy, medical intuition, NLP, and all of the controversy around that. Psychic surgery, astrological retrograde reversal. Yep, that's a thing. I don't know what it is, but it's a term. Channeling, rebirthing, clouding, pseudo-archaeology. Remote viewing, phrenology, bilocation, electronic voice phenomenon, white sounds, psychometry, middle realm awareness, thought field therapy, power spots, tapping, neural balancing. Oh, and also this last one that I heard about that meth kills the flu. Don't try that at home. I'm sure it's not true. It, well, it might, but it kills a lot of other things too. And while this list is long, it is a tiny percentage of the cures, the therapies, the ideas, theologies, and marketing ideas out there. They're all ideas clients have shared with me, and I'm not the only one in this field, so I can only imagine how many ideas there are floating around out there. And so if a new client says they have come to believe that ferrets run the universe from underwater habitats submerged in the Bermuda Triangle, and I don't react, that's why out there ideas don't kind of shock me anymore. They sometimes intrigue me, sometimes disturb me, but they don't shock me. And I found that sometimes the ideas are less important anyway to me than the real reasons that this is all a problem to me. First of all, sometimes people die. They are taught to believe what they're told instead of taking their medication told to bathe in specially blessed water instead of needing to continue with their chemotherapy. 
It's irresponsible, it's dangerous, it's malpractice, and it's morally reprehensible and repugnant, again, to me. And they don't resist the encouragement sometimes to commit suicide in some of these organizations because they're told they're not killing themselves. They'll just be shedding their corporal selves and living on again. It also bothers me because none of these terms can be fully understood or defined. So you never really know what it all means. And then you can't really get an accurate sense of it, a grasp of it to find out if it has any veracity or accuracy or validity, or if it's even a thing at all. These ideas usually come with a price tag too, and you often need to pay to get this information and this enlightenment, this treatment, this training, have this transformational moment. And it gives people false hope and it wastes their time and resources and is built on a foundation that promotes magic while it inhibits research and finding out the truth. And as you heard in my conversation with Kernan, I understand the wish for magic. Sometimes I wish it really did exist. I understand the need to believe what you've thought was impossible before because it's empowering, it's hopeful, it's soothing, and it just feels really good. Maybe there are people who truly believe these ideas and feel they are providing others with tools and cures and insights that they just can't get anywhere else. And that's all right as long as you don't keep teaching these new agery ideas after seeing that they are at best something that has had a zero impact on someone, but at worst, have put people's bodies and their minds at risk knowingly. But there have always been a plethora of snake oil salesmen, an endless stream of them, in fact, and there always will be. And you don't have to be afraid of it or avoid everything out there. And there are some ideas, admittedly, that sounded nuts at first, and they turned out to be great and valid. Plenty of fun was made originally of the ideas of antibiotics, seasonal affective disorder, mosquitoes carrying malaria, continental drift, that there is this thing called a germ and this thing called genetics, and that there would ever be space flight, and also traumatic brain injury and concussions from sports injuries. And also that learning disabilities are not necessarily correlated with IQ. That seemed to be new information for a lot of people. Every once in a while, I go to a group meeting, to a healer, to other people and places I've heard about just to check it out for myself. And I know that I will really be able to then see kind of firsthand what these people are talking about, but I also know that I'm not going to see it all. A lot of things are saved for people who are in the upper levels, people who kind of have been fully initiated. That's when they really see what's happening behind the scenes. But I've sat patiently through a ton of word salad. It doesn't bother me. It kind of fascinates me. And what I notice too is the people nodding their heads yes in the room as though they somehow understand this. And there are people who get up in front of people and will speak endlessly but say nothing. And again, I can handle it. And I even write some of them down. Like when a workshop leader was asked one time by a not fully convinced participant, so why do we need to come back if you just told us that you've given us all the tools we need for a better life? And the workshop leader said, because your mind is feeling satisfied, but your soul is asking that question. 
and until you can align your soul with your mind, you're not done. That actually didn't convince him. And he's looked at his watch and said, gotta go. But the other people in the room were nodding again, their heads, yes. Like somehow that made sense. People don't want to have their spiritual or emotional or psychological parties crashed. And I can also handle when a healer tells me to stand up while he's doing his healing so the energy can run all the way through me from my third eye down to the core of the earth, whatever that means, and it's not measurable, and so I go along with it. It doesn't hurt me. I can even tolerate, and this is all just collect data about these people. I can even tolerate the instruction by kind of a mystical coach to listen with the dance of possibility. That's an actual quote. And when he said that to me, there was a long pause and a meaningful gaze into my eyes. And I remember thinking that I was in a cartoon and if there had been a thought bubble, I would have said in that thought bubble, you know the thing that you just said doesn't make sense, right? But esoteric doesn't equal evolved and trippy doesn't equal true and unprovable doesn't prove, well, anything. But what I can't handle are the people who will say, I sense something is very wrong with you and you need to pay for my services to keep you safe or even alive or someone you love alive. Or the therapists or others who say that if you can't remember a particular horrific abuse event in your childhood, that that just proves that it's true. And then the ever popular, it doesn't matter what I do to you or what I have done to you and what others might think is wrong that I've done to you. Your only problem is that you feel anger about it. And that's something that I need to help you with. And when you hear those sorts of things, I want you to hear them through a filter, through an internal translator that can actually translate what that message means. That it's not that your anger is the issue. It's the person saying to you, I want to make sure that I get away with everything and I can do anything to you and I can rely on you not resisting. I was one time quoted in an article about a mystical group, and a lot of people had been hurt in this organization. And they asked me for some quotes about it, and I shared some ideas that I'd gotten from the people who had come to see me. And the last line in this article was a quote from someone who represented the organization who said, all of the things that Rachel Bernstein just said just prove why we are necessary. Just prove that because there are people out there who are so negative, who are so away and distant from the light, from the light of goodness, that we need to be here to balance out that energy. We need to be here to be the light. So Rachel is the one who proves why we are needed because she is so disturbed and we need to help purify the people out there who are so disturbed. And so it didn't bother me, but I'm sharing it with you because if you're ever in a situation where you have spent your time or you've given your trust to an organization that gives you the sort of pseudo mystical version of 
I know you are, but what am I? It's time to go. These people are not worth your time. They don't treat you respectfully, and they don't take responsibility. And you deserve better. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.